Hello and welcome to Clock Spinning, the podcast of Magic's history as told card by card through Cube. I'm Austin and with me as always is Connor. How are you today, Connor? You know, I'm pretty good. Just cracked open a bottle of root beer. What kind of root beer? It's a Boylan Bottling Company root beer. Boylan. I think I've had a Boylan. Boylan's yeah. pretty good. It's not my top tier root beer, but it's a good root beer. Yeah, it's, it's like kind of kind of half taste to it. it. Doesn't have that full rich root beer flavor I'm looking for. Half taste. What does what does half taste mean to you? Ah, like watered down or something. That doesn't sound desirable. You know, there's a uh, there's a root beer around here from I think it's called Caldera Brewing Company down in Ashland, Oregon, and they have this mind-blowing root beer that's like really low sugar. It's like 15 grams a can, and yet it's like super root beery and flavorful. It's great root hmm. beer if you can find it. Hmm. It's pretty hard to find like any root beer here. So in LA, yeah, I won't hold my breath. Thought you guys had everything. Everything but root beer, I guess. Like, I was lucky to find this one. This was the only, like, nice bottled root beer option at Ralph's. Not even a Henry Winards or something. Not not even a Henry's. Wow. Okay. Um, Well, if this is your first time listening to the Root Beer cast, welcome. Um, (laughs) This is is Clock Spinning. If you're uh, new to the show, we recommend actually starting from episode one. We're reviewing every card, yes, every card, in the original Champions of Kamigawa set, one by one, both to talk about the kind of history of the card, where it showed up in competitive magic, where it fits into the flavor of the set, where it fits in mechanically. And then also we're designing a cube. Uh, And so maybe start with episode one and you can also follow along at clockspinning.com. We've got a link to the cube there. And if you're uh, listening to the show, let us know what you think of it. Comment on Reddit, send us an email. Um, It's a lot of fun to hear from people um, and hear what you think. Definitely. And we do actually read everything. Yes. Every single comment. All right. Well, Connor, should we dive into the... uh, 10 to 15, depending on you, how you want to count them, lands of uh, Kamigawa? Yeah, let's do it. Wrap up this set. Okay, well, our first land is Boseju, who shelters all. Legendary land. Uh, it comes into play tapped, and you can tap it and pay two life to add one to your mana pool. If that mana is spent on an instant or sorcery spell, that spell can't be countered by spells or abilities. So I think where I'll start here is that I love this card for the really, really unusual design space that it explores. There are only six cards in mana, or in magic, there are only six cards in magic that give an effect based on how you spend the mana they generate. And actually two of those cards are in the set, Boseju and then Hall of the Bandit Lord coming up in just a few cards. Uh, this is the first set in the history of Magic where this mechanic appears. And from there, it went untouched again for, I believe, almost 10 years until Generator Servant uh, was released in M15. That's pretty mind-blowing. I know it is. And also, of those six, all five other ones care about creatures. This is the only one that cares about non-creature spells. So the other ones are Carnelian Orb of Dragonkind. Domri, Chaos Bringer, Generator Servant, Guild Mages Forum, and Hall of the Bandit Lord. So anyway, I, I do love how unique this effect is. There's nothing else like it in Magic. Yeah, I mean, it is it is a, a pretty cool card. Not sure on what role, if any, it could fill in RQ, but it is super interesting. 
Yeah, it's uh, yeah. we'll we'll get to that in a second. Uh, one other thing that's worth noting about this card is, of course, it inspired a much more uh, impactful recent Boseju in uh, Neon Dynasty, Boseju who endures, which has quickly become a multi-format all-star. This has seen a little bit of play over the years in legacy, modern, and vintage. You know that can't be countered thing is pretty meaningful in those eternal formats. Although I think entering tapped as well as shocking yourself every time you use it. Those are those are pretty severe costs that has kept this from being more than a fringe role player. Yeah, pretty pretty painful. I also think, uh, you know, kind of a big difference between this and Boseju, who endures, is that, you know, Boseju, who endures, obviously has uh, a channel that you can use at any time without your opponent knowing that you have that uh, in hand. And also, bo- both of these are legendary lands, which means you can only have one out. But of course, for Boseju, who endures... If you're using it for the channel effect, that doesn't matter at all. Yeah, I also think if this um, had another effect, another mode that was just like tap, add colorless or something, I think this would be a lot better. Like if you could choose to not do the pay to life for the special mana. But the fact that anytime you want to tap this, you're shocking yourself is uh, pretty debilitating. Yeah, there's there's a couple of other lands that we'll get to later that i feel the same (laughs) way about it it gets it gets even harsher uh, a little Mm -hmm. bit later in terms of life cost yeah in our cube i i think this is a pretty clear like insta cut um there's really not that much counter magic running around in this format um what there is is really not worth uh protecting yourself against at this level of cost like i I think this is a unfortunately easy insta cut yeah I I agree. It, it it feels like a great example of a card that can, you know, really be a role player in maybe EDH or some other constructed formats, but is almost always going to be useless in cube and stats on cube cobra kind of bear that out. It appears yeah. in less than 1% of all cubes. Aw. All right. Insta cut. Cut. Okay. Next up, we have uh, the first land in a, a cycle of five lands that we... Uh, We'll be talking about, maybe not in as much detail as the other cards, but we've got Cloudcrest Lake. This is a land. Uh, tap, add one to your mana pool. Tap, add white or blue to your mana pool. And it doesn't untap during your next untap step. Um, so I was thinking it might be might be best to save like a really in-depth discussion of this for uh, kind of a second segment that we'll be getting into later in today's episode. But I think that this and the other duels uh, that will be following this are just too slow to be fun. Like Kamigawa Champions is not a multicolor oriented set, so you know, I, I it, it makes sense that there is not a lot of mana fixing, that it's not especially convenient or easy to get multiple colors of mana. But it feels like it should be easier than this to get into two colors. Uh, this is just so slow and. I, I mean, I guess not not slow in the sense that you won't get the mana as soon as you play it, because you can with Cloudcrest Lake, but the uh, the way that it slows down your ramp, the way that it slows down your mana curve uh, feels pretty painful. Yeah, I'm right there with you. These are funny because I, I think they're maybe slightly better than they look. Like, I don't think they're good cards, but the fact that they enter untapped is pretty nice um, and sort of rare, certainly in an uncommon dual land. But I think it's it's kind of hard to get players to recognize that. Like, even if these are marginally better, and I know we've had a few people um, like Dash Hope's comment over uh, over the episodes that these are not as bad as we've implied every time they've come up. But I think even if they're not, like, I don't love that kind of sort of trick or test card where 
you really have to be in the know to know that this card is not a total pile of garbage. Um, you know, I just think it'd be really hard to get drafters to pick this up. And we'll talk about this more in the mana base segment you alluded to earlier, but we're not planning to restrict ourselves just to Kamigawa lands for mana fixing in this set. There is just no mana fixing outside these cards, really, in terms of land. And so we're planning to bring in other land cycles. And once you open that door, I think it's really hard to want to uh, include this uh, um, nap land, as Scryfall calls it, cycle. Hmm. Yeah, there's uh, there's just nothing really exciting about these. They certainly, I don't think, were a, a, a part of Magic's history in any interesting way. Uh, they're not especially tied to the set or to the theme or to the flavor. So I just I don't see any reason to have these in when we can have more interesting, uh, more fun to play with duels. Yeah, it's interesting you say that about um, not being tied to the set because... All the other land in the set and almost every other card in the set, when you look at the art, when you read the name, there's no doubt in your mind that it's a Kamigawa card. Whereas these have, I think, very deliberately generic names. You know, Cloudcrest Lake, Lantern Lit Graveyard, Pinecrest Ridge, Tranquil Garden, and Watervale Cavern. Those are all land names that could appear in any set in Magic. And I think the intent there must have been to be able to reprint these because they have generic names and right. pretty generic art. Uh, they're actually a functional reprint of another cycle from Tempest, um, which are the exact same cards, but with Dominaria-ish names like Tholikos, uh, Tholikos Lowlands, I think it is, Mog Hollows, Vec Townships, ships. Uh, so this is a this is a reprint of a terrible cycle, uh, and like those cycles, uh, neither of these have ever seen any reprints, uh, and I think Wizards just overestimated playability. Of this card, these cards, in the sense that they assumed they had any playability. <laughs> Right. It's it's especially funny to think that, you know, these were printed in the block right before Ravnica, which was the most multicolor oriented set ever at the time. Right. Uh and you know, you've and got it does nothing to really help underwhelming out. duels. <laughs> right, right. Like you would with all of the the land options that you have in Ravnica, you would not be looking at these. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think uh, we'll probably breeze over the rest of these uh, in terms of discussion, but I do think we should briefly dwell on the art because they're all by John Avon, who's, of course, one of the greatest Magic Land artists. Um, mm-hmm. And I think some of them are really exceptional and there's a few I really dislike, but this one I quite like. I don't think it's um, I like the huge, you know, lake that dominates the painting. It kind of reminds me of uh, Crater Lake in Oregon. Uh, I like how blue and white it is, but not in a way that feels kind of uh, cheesy or false. It's just like Clearly a blue-white land. It's a nice serene scene. I just think it's a nice piece. I think this is going to foreshadow some other artistic tensions that we'll have later in the episode. But I do. This may be my least favorite one. I do. What not of like all this five? At all of all five? Yeah. Oh, this is by. There are several that are way worse than this. Why is this your least favorite? Okay, there's just there's nothing here for me to like. I don't like how monotone it is. It's really just blue with some white. Like, there is no other color happening in here. It's a blue and uh, white land, Connor. Yeah, but it's, like, literally white. It's the white of clouds. Uh-huh. Um, if you look at the lake, it doesn't, you know, it, it's creating this scene of a very placid, kind of tranquil lake up on, I guess, some steps, some plateau or something like that. It looks very mm-hmm. still, very peaceful, but it's not actually reflecting the clouds in the sky. It's There's just sort of a, a big sun spot that's blurring in there and then the rest of it's just sort of blurred the blue Mm. of the lake is just blurred out from this white of the sun the clouds are Mm. actually reflected in the lake which could have been a really cool artistic touch and certainly something that you know an artist like john avon is fully capable of doing 
Huh. Uh, but it's mostly the color. It's just all blue. <laughs> Hmm. I like the color. I hear you about the reflection, though. I, I think you're right. There could have been more done there. Yeah, the lake feels phoned in. Maybe there's a very light breeze on the lake disrupting the reflection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that's what he was thinking. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Um. Okay, playability-wise, Instacut? Yeah. And it sounds like art-wise, Instacut for you as well. Yeah, it's a definite art Instacut for me. Okay. All right, let's turn to another cycle uh, the legendary, uh, monocolored legendary lands. First up, a Ganjo Castle. Legendary land, tap, add white to your mana pool. White, tap, prevent the next two damage that would be dealt to target legendary creature this turn. This cycle, uh, just spoiler, I have all of them as an auto-include. Uh, and I have them as auto-includes for two reasons. Uh, one, they're basically free. There's very little that punishes you for having legendary lands in the block. They enter untapped, which is sort of shocking for Kamigawa. And they all give pretty reasonable and real effects. Um, like in this case, preventing two damage is pretty niche. You know, it's not a mind-blowing effect. It can be really good when I think you can point it at any creature. So we've raved a lot about um, cards like Kabuto Moth, or if we were to look at other blocks, I think cards like Samite Healer tend to overperform. The fact you can only point this at a legendary uh, degrades the value of that somewhat because it means your opponent knows where it's pointed and therefore it doesn't totally wreck combat math. That said, it's still real. It still makes your legendary creatures a little bit harder to deal with. Um, it still just acts like a planes most of the time when you need it to. Uh, I think it's just a, a really good card. Yeah, I, I, I pretty much agree with you on... All of that, but I will say I don't have all of these, or maybe even any of the cards in this cycle as auto-includes. And my reason for that is, unlike a basic land, it, like the, these are just all upside, obviously, but unlike a basic land, uh, you have to actually draft this, right? You can, you can grab as many planes as you want to put into your final cube deck, you can grab as many islands as you want, a Ganjo Castle, any of the other cards in this cycle, you have to actually choose to draft them uh, instead of another card. Right, so it costs a pick, yeah. Right, it costs a pick. And just thinking about, you know, how, I guess, how much I would prioritize any of the abilities on these cards, you know, because obviously, aside from the ability, they're just a basic land. I would not rate any of these abilities very highly, especially since they're all, they're all tied to legendary creatures specifically. And if you don't have a legendary creature, or if you're not in a situation where uh, this ability targeting a legendary creature matters, then this is just a land, and you've, you've used a pick on a land. Right, but we have quite a lot of legendary creatures, right? I mean, let me go double check. Um, so, I mean, we've got 45 copies of legendary creatures right now out of... Um, 45 out of 173. So almost a third to a quarter of our creatures are legendary. That's a pretty high hit rate. I mean, you do, like, you have a decent chance of having a legendary creature for this land to target, but, like, my, my concern is in the drafting stage, right? Like, I don't, I don't think you're necessarily unhappy to, you know, be drawing this instead of any other land when you're playing. Uh, but when you're drafting, I, I feel like this is just almost always going to be a last pick. How about a last pick? But I think it's probably a free pick around pick nine or something, if I make up a number. Yeah. It's like going late and you're probably not fighting for it very hard. 
And is that really an auto-include? For me, still kind of yes, in part. We haven't done a lot of flavor auto-includes, but I feel like these are sort of iconic locations in Kamigawa. I think they're semi-iconic cards. Uh, At least to me, to be honest, I don't know if they're iconic in the sense that everyone knows and thinks about these cards, but I certainly, they made a big impression on me when I was becoming acquainted with this set, playing it back in the day. I was like, oh, these are so cool. All these legendary lands that do something cool. Admittedly, I can never recall really triggering one in our casual games back then, but (laughs) I liked the idea of using them. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that's a fair point. And it is, it is a cool cycle. And and actually something that we haven't pointed out yet, but bears mentioning, is that setting aside the dual land cycle that we just talked about and Forbidden Orchard, which we're going to talk about next, every other land in this set is legendary. Yeah, So there is something true. kind of cool. There, like it's, it's kind of cool, I guess, to have all five of these monocolor legendary lands in. I don't know. One of the funny things, before we get to a final decision uh, for our cube, one of the funny things about this cycle is basically none of them have seen any meaningful reprints. They've shown up in the list and mystery boosters, but they've never been in like any commander decks. They've never been in any kind of supplementary product. And most of them don't show up that highly in EDH. For example, this is only in 7,500 EDH decks, which is like one or 2% of decks, um, which isn't nothing, you know, it's thousands of decks, but for a card that can just go in like any mono white deck, for example, I'm in a format centered around legendary creatures, I'm sort of amazed these don't show up more. That is pretty strange. And like the this card, I think it's worth it was worth around eleven dollars last time I checked. So it's like, you know, it's it's not some big money card, but it's not a dollar rare. You know, someone wants this for something. So I wonder where the Aganjo castles and other legendary lands are showing up. I think it's probably easier to splurge on like a dual land, you know, like a shock lander or a fast land or whatever. I guess shock yeah. is 10 bucks anymore, but like a fast land, right? It's like that goes in the deck. It really clearly improves outcomes. This is more like a pretty marginal card for pretty much mono white EDH, which is not exactly a popular, <laughs> a popular uh, style of EDH deck. Right. And it, this is sort of like, yeah, it's, it's better than a planes because it is a planes with just some upside staple to it, but it's worse than a lot of other land options yeah uh so i'm at auto include on this sounds like you're somewhere lower where did you land i mean i landed at at playable which i did not land at for all of the cards in this cycle i i feel like you know preventing the next preventing the two damage to a legendary creature is kind of a real effect like you were saying with kabuto moth and like similar kind of combat trick effects um it only costs one white mana to do that and you can keep doing it so yeah i feel like playable is right for me i can go down to playable i guess i mean i i struggle to see cutting it but i'm fine with playable okay i mean it's still in at playable so i'm not asking you to give it up thank you thank you oh art uh we should talk about the art here i think the art here is fine uh wayne england has done a ton of iconic magic art i wouldn't say this is on the iconic list i would say it's sort of um Sounds much harsher than I intended to be, but sort of workmanlike. You know, it's like very architectural. It's kind of funny because there's not really any. It's so symmetrical and neat that it doesn't really look like a real place. And there's not a lot to sort of grab onto or focus on. You know, it's just like this big castle with an oversized gate and some clouds. So there's really just there's nothing about it that's kind of hooking me or pulling me into it or making me imagine myself in the scene. It's just like just there. Yeah, that's that's a good point about there being no real hook here. Like, there's just not a lot of 
visual interest happening in this piece. A lot of straight lines, a lot of symmetry. It's also kind of all blue. Like it does it's all the same color. It is very blue, kind of kind of a lavender almost. Yeah, yeah, which is nice. It's a soothing, it's a soothing castle color. Yeah. All right, playable 1x. Okay, now we are coming up on uh the only other non-legendary land aside from the duels, <laughs> Forbidden Orchard. <laughs> uh this you can tap to add one mana of any color to your mana pool. And whenever you tap it for mana, put a 1-1 colorless spirit creature token into play under target opponent's control. So this is a a pretty cool card, one that has seen some reprinting in Commander. It gives you access to the full color pie, uh, and it does it in a really strange, unique, pretty big downside way of giving your opponent a 1-1 spirit uh, <laughs> a uh-huh. creature every time you tap it for mana. Um, I kind of want to have it in. You've kind of jumped to ratings. I think we can go back to the rest of it later. Where do you rate this? I, I have this as an insta-cut because I think the cost is just unacceptable. I I have it as an auto-include because I feel <laughs> wow. like it... <laughs> wow. Not okay. on power. Not on power. I have it as an auto-include, I, I guess, for similar reasons that you have a Ganjo Castle. Uh, this is the only land in this set that gives you access to all mana colors. I think uh-huh. it's only one of two land in the entire block. Gives you access to all mana colors. I think the other one is Tendo Ice Bridge from Betrayers. And th- there's something about this that just feels so perfectly Kamigawa, right? It mm-hmm. it gives you what you need, but at an enormous cost. And it's also... <laughs> that, is, that is an iconic part of Kamigawa. It's it, it is, right? It fits right in. And it's a spirit. And it's got freaky, wacky art. Super yeah, weird art. Very Kamigawa-looking spirits coming out of this... Uh, I guess one tree orchard. Yeah, they're like bug, birds, branches, fungus, spirits. They're really pretty gross, and you don't want them. I know. I, uh, I, I, my resistance is uh, fading slightly um, because I do agree it's iconic. It's sort of it's funny. I feel like it shows up in two places. It shows up, as far as I know. If anyone knows of other uses, please let me know. But one is it shows up in like cheaper five color EDH mana bases. And it shows up in specific EDH decks that like giving your opponents things like Trolley. Uh, what is Zedru, the Great Heart? What is that? Is that it? Those kind of Trolley EDH decks. And then weirdly, mm-hmm. it's shown up in Vintage as a staple ever since it was printed. Because with Oath of Druids, uh, Vintage being the only format outside EDH where you can play Oath, you know, Vintage doesn't have a lot of creatures. And so Oath of Druids, of course, only triggers when your opponent has more creatures than you. Um, which you can't rely on in Vintage because a lot of decks don't have any creatures, especially 10 years ago, historically. Uh, and so Forbidden Orchard is like, great, <laughs> I can give your opponents creatures and I can fix for any color of mana. Uh, so I, I do love this card's role in Vintage. I think that's sort of a wonderful, hilarious interaction. That is pretty great. I had no idea about that. And it makes me love this more. Yeah, I uh, I don't know if I can go to auto-include. I think I can come up from Instacut. I do think it's bad, honestly. I think like, okay, you think about like City of Brass, right? City of Brass is a, is a tough land in itself. Like taking one damage, you know, the first time it hits you, you're like, ow. And then the fourth time you're like, I really can't tap this anymore. <laughs> um, and I think this is a bigger downside, right? Like giving your opponent a 1-1 is kind of like giving yourself one life loss every turn, at least potentially. So I, I do... I do want to recognize the downside here is very meaningful. 
Oh, yeah, it's it's definitely a lot more painful than City of Brass. I'm not going to defend this as, as a great card, but I think it is, uh, I, I guess, I, I'd like our mana base to have some, you know, five <laughs> At least options. one Kamigawa land in it. And I feel, yes, I, I'd like there to be at least one Kamigawa land that gives more than one color, uh, uh-huh. or no colors in the case of a lot of <laughs> land that we'll <laughs> be talking about. Our options from within Kamigawa are this and Tendo Ice Bridge, and I don't want mm-hmm. Tendo Ice Bridge. I've got kind of a soft spot for that card, but it's, it's certainly just, not. It's yeah, neither of them are great. We can agree on that. We we can we can agree on that for sure. It would just feel like kind of a shame to not have this like pretty pretty bad like pretty painful five color option in. Even though we you know are are stepping outside of the boundaries of Kamigawa for our mana base, you know, I feel like having this in would be a fun little callback. All right. That the cube is right. about. What what rating do you insist on? I mean, I guess if if you'll agree to keep it in, then I can we can call it meh. Okay. All right. Meh one X. What meh that I'm not allowed to cat, which starts to sound like an auto include one X. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I feel like we're really both of us are kind of uh mutating auto include uh now that we're coming to the end of the set here yeah we're getting <laughs> a little loosey goosey yeah we're we're using it defensively not as not as this is really cool and powerful and a card that we can't wait to play but just i don't want the other guy to cut this <laughs> it's, a, it's like a defensive <laughs> I want to lock play this down it's it's like a force of will yeah uh, this is my defensive auto include force of will forbidden orchard all right now one x okay Let's talk about Hall of the Bandit Lord. Legendary land. Enters the battlefield tapped. Tap, pay three life. Add one to your mana pool. If that mana is spent on a creature spell, that creature has haste. Whoo, daddy. Three life. That is my first reflection. Three life is bolting your face. Um, There are not a lot of cards that uh, bolt your face every time, lands that bolt your face every time you use them. I think this might be the only one. Are there any other lands that bolt your face? I don't think so. That feels pretty unique. Um, Let's see. Uh, Type land, oracle, three damage. Uh, yes, there are. Uh, there is a Tarnished Citadel from Odyssey, uh, hmm. which is a five-color uh, land. Tap, add colorless, or tap, add one mana of any color. This deals three damage to you. Wow. Yeah. So there's one, uh, and that's it. Huh. Thank goodness. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have this right on the bubble between Instacut and Mad. Like, haste is a powerful thing. Haste is powerful effect to attach to a creature um doing that repeatedly on a land is really powerful but like realistically you probably can't use this more than two maybe three times in a game like i feel like kamigawa aggro decks just aren't fast enough to totally ignore their life total uh and so as a result i just i don't know i just don't know if this is even a meh yeah i i I think you're right i'm i'm also on the bubble between meh and instacut because it does you know this does feel like a, a meaningful effect and something that could potentially turn a game around for you uh, or make one of your big spirit dragons or a big legendary creature uh, even more impactful. Uh, but three life is just a lot of life. And the fact that this comes in tapped, that it, it's kind of ironic and painful that a land that you know is meant to give a creature haste uh, comes in tapped. So you can't use this 
you can't use that ability at all the <laughs> I turn know. you play this. You have to set it up. <laughs> so you have to like know that you want to haste a creature in, have the life to do it, use your land drop on Hall of the Bandit Lord ahead of time, and not, you know, increase your mana on that turn. Uh, and all of that for, you know, paying three life for haste maybe one or two times. Yeah, the other thing that's a little awkward about it is, you know, that it only taps for colorless. Uh, and, you know, legends in this set have non-trivial mana requirements. You know, a lot of the legends have double uh, pips in their mana cost. Like, I think a few of them even have triple pips. So, like, it, you know, or not legends, creatures in this set. And so it's kind of extra awkward in that sense. Like, it doesn't even help fix you. I think if it had, like, a, either entered untapped, like you're saying, or maybe had a second mode where it could just tap for colorless, kind of like we talked about with Boseju, I think I'd be a lot more into it. But without that, I don't know. This is just, this is an awkward card. I, I think this will be really hard to make effective use of. Yeah, this this is exactly the card I had in mind when I was saying with Boseju that we were going to have other cards where, like, having that just tap for one mana option would make it a lot more viable. Yeah, and a lot more like interesting as a pick in the cube. As it is, I, I I feel like we're both sort of talking ourselves down to it's to cut on this. I think I am. Yeah, I think it's uh it's a cool card. It's a unique card, uh, in more than one sense. Um, but I just I don't I just really struggle in a grindy for grindy slow format like this. I just don't think haste is going to be worth bolting yourself in the face repeatedly. All right, let's cut it. All right. Sad, but this is the way it is. Instacut. So long, Bandit Lord. Okay, uh, now we've got another one of these slow duels, these nap lands, as I guess they're sort of called. It's <laughs> a great uh, This is Lantern Lit Graveyard. Um, tap to add one to your mana pool, or tap to add black or red to your mana pool, and then it doesn't untap during your next untap step. You know, obviously nothing, nothing to add on this that we didn't already cover with Cloudcrest Lake, but the art on this is... 10 out of 10 for me. It's, I think this art is dynamite. I think it's, it, this is up, there's two strong competitors for best art of the cycle, but I think this one's a very strong contender. You want to talk about what it looks like and why it's so cool? Yeah, it's, uh, it's basically a, a foggy graveyard in sort of a, a forest of thin, sparse trees uh, that are very, very dark, um, almost black, kind of a dark, the whole thing has a, a very dark purple hue to it. Uh, and then there are these lanterns with these bright burning red flames uh, hanging from the trees, or maybe they're just floating in the air. You can't quite tell. Uh, and then it also looks like maybe the graveyard is a little bit flooded, or there's just some mist hanging low over the ground. It's very, very spooky, very evocative, uh, really cool lighting effects going on in here. Uh, just super well done. Yeah, it's also black and red in a way that isn't like say Cloudcrest Lake uh, where it's like blue and white like this is black and red but not in a hit you over the head with it way but it's a nice subtle visual cue about what uh, colors this taps for yeah that's that's a great point and actually something that I wanted to to get at in some of the lands we'll talk about when we pivot over to the mana bases you know there are a lot of dual lands where uh, it's <laughs> the the land is is basically a plains and a forest smack together uh-huh. And the the art like is trying to reflect that very hard to like show here is a plains meeting a forest, and I like that lantern light graveyard is just sort of, you know, it's it's kind of evoking each of those colors, uh, like black for a graveyard and red for lanterns, I guess, but it's not 
it it's not constrained to mountain and swamp. Yeah, just a just a great piece. Um, incidentally, if you're uh, wondering what all these arts look like, uh, if you go to the show notes, there will be a link to Scryfall where you can see all the cards we talk about today, um, so you can follow along. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah, I don't have much more to add except it's it's great. Yeah, it's a great Instacut. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's talk about Minamo School at Water's Edge, legendary land. Tap, add blue, blue tap, untap, target legendary permanent. Uh, as I said, I have all five of these that auto include. You're welcome to try to fight me down on each of them. But this one is, I think, around the sort of middle to upper tier. This is, I, what I like about this is it kind of does two things. One, uh, it gives all of your legendaries kind of a pseudo vigilance, which I think is powerful in and of itself. Um, a lot of legendaries are pretty good at tussling. And so being able to use them on offense and defense is nice. Um, but we also have currently 11 legendary creatures in the cube that tap for an effect. Uh, and so I think that's uh, that's extra nifty that you can reuse like a Kiku or a um, Kiki-Jiki or something. Uh, admittedly, it's going to be a tall order mana base-wise to have this in a deck with Kiki-Jiki, but let's just ignore that. Um, you know, I, I think this is especially cool for the way it rewards you for seeking out those cute interactions. But even if you don't, you know, giving all your legendary pseudo-vigilances isn't terrible. I think this is uh, it's just a great card. Yeah, I I guess I, I hadn't given the, the pseudo-vigilance point a fair shake, I guess. <laughs> like, I'd just been thinking of this in terms of, you know, what legendaries can you untap uh, for some kind of cool effect? And there are some, you know, you're right that it's it's going to be hard to have this and Kiki-Jiki in a deck that also works <laughs> and does things. Um, but there's some cool other ones. You know, you have uh, a zombie Lady of Scrolls who can, you know, tap wizards, Ooh, including yeah, herself, yeah. to draw cards. So you could use this to get some extra um, card draw off of her. Uh, you've got Dokai Weaver of Life, one of the green flip cards that uh, gives you a big XX creature, you know, with power toughness based on the number of lands you have. So there's some cool ideas of things you could do with this. I feel like this is more a little more interesting than a Gonjo Castle uh, to me, but I'm not sure if it's actually better. So for uh... me, it's a meh. Yeah, I uh, I would agree. I think it's a little better, maybe. I don't think it's dramatically better. Uh, one other thing I like about this is uh, just a little bit of trivia. Um, its highest play rate in EDH is with a commander called Empress Galena, who I'd never heard of. Uh, she's a trolley invasion card uh, who taps. It's like blue, blue tap, gain control of target legendary permanent. And uh, <laughs> I, I like the idea of combining this to just like steal all your opponent's commanders and then bonus troll points. It looks like people often throw Leyline of Singularity into the mix, which makes all non-land permanents legendary. And so um, just props to people with those decks. That That's pretty funny. That's yeah. pretty fun. That is fun. Oh, you know, one other argument, I think, Connor, for something a little higher than your meh is this is a pretty iconic Kamigawa location. Like, I feel like about 50% of all the blue cards, spirits and mortals alike, take place somewhere within about a quarter mile of the spot. Okay, that that's a pretty good point. Because when you look at some of the other monocolor legendary lands that we'll get to, uh, they are not iconic at all. This and Aganjo Castle, I think, are pretty, you know, central parts of the Kamigawa lore. Uh, and yeah, you're right. There are like multiple blue cards that literally mention Minamo. Or just a, have a picture of it in the background. Although I don't recall yeah. the other ones in the other ones, Minamo having gigantic horns. Yeah, I guess those are just um, those are just wizard houses in the other <laughs> other ones or something. Oh, they're not the central school. I, I guess those I'm are the sure dorms. That's it, rather than that, that they, uh, the dorms, they didn't get it right. uh, you know the cafeterias. 
It's a very spread out campus, very large campus. Yeah, I don't see any other horns in other photos of the uh, campus, photos of the campus, uh, illustrations, sorry, of this definitely real place. Yeah, um. I, I, I didn't see horns <laughs> in the, the pamphlet that they sent me when I was admitted. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I think this card is really solid. I can go down maybe from auto-include again, but I'm not, I'm not going all the way to your meh. This is another defensive auto-include. But also, I think this card genuinely is good. Uh, okay. All right. We can meet it playable. Meet it playable. All right. All right. I'm happy to meet it playable. As a side note, this also sees uh, fringe play in modern merfolk decks, which I think is sort of wonderful. I mean, really fringe play, like just a couple couple a year at the um, kind of a premier event level uh, on MPG top eight. But that's still kind of cool. Yeah. It's still got some legs. Yeah. And horns. And horns. <laughs> Too much on the same page. All right. <laughs> okay uh back to back we've got another monocolor legendary land uh the green one okina temple to the grandfathers so this taps for green uh and you can pay g and tap to give target legendary creature plus one plus one until end of turn to me this this feels like the monocolor land with the most just pure upside you know this is this is a plus one plus one on a stick that you can just always have as an option, uh, it makes any legendary creature better, as opposed to you know maybe Minamo, where like you what you really want is a legend that that taps to do something. Uh, this is just pure buffing. Yeah, I think this card is uh, is great. Um, you know, we've raved many many hours ago now about Kabuto Moth, uh, which if you're not familiar with it is a white creature that taps to give plus one plus two, uh, and that is widely considered one of the best uncommons in the set. Uh, and one of the best limited cards in the entire set. And I think, like, this isn't that far off in a way. Obviously, you can't target anything. But, you know, a land that just boosts any of your legendary creatures, aka often your best creatures, um, basically for free, that's uh, that's pretty good. That's pretty real. Yep, absolutely. One of the funny things about this is it's, uh, I think it's one of the better lands in our cube. It's the least loved by far of this cycle in EDH. Um, which I think is just another example of how EDH is different than most hmm. other forms of magic. And I'll cut off my old man grumbling about commander here. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think in EDH, you know, where you got 40 life and where creature combat doesn't matter so much, this is pretty marginal. But I think in a dual commander context, in a format with a lot of legends, this is pretty good. And on it, we haven't said this yet, but if I had just any cube that um, has a large legendary sub theme, like maybe, I don't know, a Dominaria set cube or something, I think it's worth looking at this whole cycle. I think they do fun, interesting things in any kind of dual command, dual uh, magic environment where uh, there's a lot of legends running around. Uh, that makes a lot of sense about this not being as popular in EDH, but it is a little sad because I feel I feel like at least in this format, this is definitely one of the better ones. Yeah, it's a little sad. This is actually the only uh, member of its cycle to never be reprinted. Really? Yeah. Uh, funny thing to me about this is. Um, all the other four of these, I would say, are sort of iconic to very iconic locations in Kamigawa. And then I don't think this card is mentioned like anywhere else in the set. Like the flavor text says, if a land can be said to have a heart, Okina is the heart of Kamigawa. But that doesn't seem super true. Like to the extent the green cards are placed anywhere, they seem to either be like snakes who are like in um, trees and or weird egg houses or like uh -huh, swole uh -huh. guys guarding a bell. Like, I don't see any other Okina references. It It is a little sad that maybe maybe the bell is in the temple and we're just not seeing it, but there seems to be a this lot temple more is too small. attention. Yeah, it's 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 tiny. Maybe this is just a, a door, but 
there's a lot more love given to the Junkio Bell than there is to this supposed heart of Kamigawa. Yeah, there's two other references in the whole block, it looks like, both in Saviors. Maybe in Saviors they went, oh, shoot, we need to mention Okina again. Um, oh, oh. <laughs> we've got Okina Nightwatch, uh, which is a five-mana 4-3 that gets plus three, plus three if you have more cards in hand than your opponent's. And Ayumi, the last visitor, who's a really funky 7-3 for five with legendary landwalk. So that's it. Those, they both marginally reference Okina in their flavor text. Hmm. Well, I mean, it, it gets a name drop in the Night Watch, so that's yeah. something. Uh, but it sounds like you're pretty high on this. I'm at auto-include, as I said, as I am for each of these. Yeah, I I had it at playable, but you know what? I'll, I'll come up to auto-include for yes! this one. I haven't given you an auto-include on these Thank yet, you. so we'll do it. Thank you. Oh, one other this thing the I one. forgot to mention for uh, Minamo, just uh, I think I could have highlighted more. It says legendary permanent, not legendary creature. And I don't think that matters too much for our cube, but I think it's pretty cool if you imagine using it in other contexts. Hmm. Yep. Good, I'm scrolling back just to see if there, yeah, uh, <laughs> if I can spot any legendary permanents that that matters for. I'm not seeing uh, any. Well, so we've got... I was thinking maybe an artifact. Yeah, I'm not seeing no. any. The Hondans, obviously, but those don't tap. Um, yeah. I don't think we have a single non-creature who taps. Legendary that taps. Oh, you could use it to untap another legendary land. You could untap another legendary land. It's been right under our noses this yeah, whole time. It's been right under in the spreadsheet. You could use this to ha- let Okina give plus two, plus two for three mana plus these two lands, five mana total. You know, that's uh, honestly, now I say it out loud. That's not great, but it c- could be worse if you have nothing else to do. Hey, not bad. You could you could also use it on Hall of the Bandit. Lord oh my goodness! To to get two mana, pay six life, and spread some haste around. Uh, yeah, have uh, have haste. Manamo hmm. Manamo is just rising and rising in my estimation. We're not rating Manamo. It's, it's working it's pretty good. Yeah. All right. Let's go on to another Napland Pine Crest Ridge. That sounds like a location in like the Cascade Mountains. Pine Crest Ridge is a land. Uh, tap add colorless. Tap, add red or green. This doesn't untap during your next untap step. Okay, as we said, these are all instacuts. We're not including Pinecrest Ridge. This also, in my view, has the worst art of the cycle. Um, if you pull it up, it's one of the most colorful lands in Magic. It's like a mountain scene. Uh, and then in between these two ridges, uh, or two, uh, yeah, mountain ridges, there's a gigantic Pinecrest ridges. upswelling of just pink, just this huge pink energy vortex rising into the sky and i find this like just laughably kind of over the top and exaggerated it's like a black velvet painting or something uh, i really dislike it and also it doesn't feel like john avon to me i feel like normally john avon's work is sort of grounded in a way that this isn't i kind of i kind of love this one <laughs> why so we're really not on the same page with these these naplands i there's just there's something so ludicrous about it and you know it it looks like this should be some enchantment or you know something explaining this just burst of yes yes light it should be an enchantment or whatever it is in the ridges but it's not it's just like a land and it's a pretty boring land and there's something about that i just really enjoy it's like this extravagant art for a completely underwhelming card i don't it's just it's so much more interesting and fun to look at than something like cloudcrest lake yeah but it doesn't really as you said it doesn't look like a land we'll talk i feel the same way about uh tranquil garden another one in the cycle coming up later but to me you're right this looks like a spell effect it looks like uh 
I don't know, like a mana flare kind of card or something. Yeah, yeah, or like the mountains are being split or something. But <laughs> I don't know. I kind of, I kind of like that. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly memorable. I don't like it though. Yeah. All right, that's fair. Anyway, it's, well, we don't have to have it in the in the queue. Yeah, it's so. an instacut, so I don't have to reconcile myself to the art. Yep. I think we did go hiking there once. <laughs> so, Pinecrest Ridge. Uh. Okay, now for a place we definitely have not been hiking at, Shinka the Blood-Soaked Keep. Another legendary land. Uh, tap to add red to your mana pool, or pay red and tap to give target legendary creature first strike until end of turn. Uh, this feels like one of the... I, I don't particularly love any of the cards in this cycle, but this, to me, feels like one of the least exciting. What? Um, it, it's just first strike. What? It's just first strike? I mean, obviously, that can be a big, great combat trick, but your opponent can see it a mile away, right? You kind of pointed this out with a ganjo. I don't, there's just something really unexciting about this to me. It just gives first strike. And if you have a small legendary creature, which you probably do if you're in red, uh, if you have a Ben Ben Aki Hermit or Kiki Jiki, like you don't have that much power to be putting first strike onto in the first place. Uh, first strike is really good, Connor. First strike is like stupid good. Like I think know. how much respect we've given to oh shoot, what is it? The three mana two two Bushido. Kitsune Blade Master. This is this lets you make any creature into Kitsune Blade Master. Like first strike is a big, big game. Any legendary any, creature. Still. As we just said, it's like twenty to thirty percent of the card pool is legendary creatures. I I just can't get that excited about it. But what? Okay, so let me keep fighting you on this. Um, another thing I'll say in this thing's defense is I think it has one of the best flavor texts of all of them, maybe the best. The glow from within looks inviting, but woe awaits whomever finds out who stokes the fire or what simmers in the pot. Isn't that great? It's like spooky and intriguing and it makes you wonder and it doesn't answer the questions that it poses, but you can kind of imagine the answers. I think it's it's a great piece of flavor text. I mean, that's that's better than the other monocolor legendary cycle flavor text. Uh, yeah, let's, that's we, we should have read them. Let's go back. So a Ganjo castle. Since the war began, the castle's walls mark the only place on Kamigawa where no Kami has ever set foot. I mean, that kind of just sounds like a fact. That sounds like like from a book of facts. Yeah, that's on the Kamigawa wiki. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just a, it's what, when you're reading Wikipedia and there's just a random sentence that doesn't connect to anything around it, that's what that is. Yep, they couldn't figure out which section to put yeah, that in. Yeah, they just in. shoved it at the end of the intro. And then Minamo School at Water's Edge. Its students graduate the school and enter history. Yawn. That's just so yachty, Carter. Mm-hmm. It's just so boring. Kind of like this, this card. card is not that boring. This card is cool. It's got cool art. It's got freaky flavor text, and first strike is great. I I think this is the most okay. powerful while you of were, the cycle. While you were doing that, I was scrolling back and looking at the red legendary <laughs> Uh-oh. creatures. Oh, I'm set. about to get fact checked <laughs> here. And they are small. <laughs> I mean, this would be great to have on uh, Brothers Yamazaki. Yep. Maybe Goto. Yep. I guess Ryusei, the spirit dragon, but I mean, he's kind of big enough that you don't really need it. Mm. Uh, other than that, you have like Kiki Jiki, Zozu the Punisher, Ben Ben, Aki but they Hermit. Don't, like they don't have to be red little targets, Aki. Connor. You could target. I know they don't. Color. I know they don't have to be. But if you're if you're picking up Shinka, you're probably you're going to be in red, yeah. right? So maybe you know, maybe you get lucky and you splash into red and also another color that has 
better creatures and you also get some of those better legendary creatures and then you have Shinka so you can spend <laughs> that red mana that you splashed into red to get mm-hmm. to give those creatures first mm-hmm. strike. I think part of my problem here is that this is in red, which, you know, as as we've discussed in our red episodes and probably plenty of the other episodes, uh, red kind of sucks in this. Yeah, set. red sucks super hard in this set. So it's it's harder to want to splash this thing. You're right, because it, it essentially demands double red. Right. Yeah. Okay. This is this is the first one where I'm willingly c- climbing down from auto include. I don't know that I I, I don't want to cut it though, Connor. Uh, we don't have to cut it. I have it at meh. I don't have it as an instant. Okay. Okay. I can live with meh. Okay. Let's live with meh. All right. On to the last card of this cycle. Shizo, Death's Storehouse. Legendary land. Tap, add black. Black, tap, target legendary creature gains fear until end of turn. Um. So I don't think this is the worst of this cycle. I think it's like fine. But I think it's pretty boring. I, I'm kind of on record throughout this podcast of not really liking fear. I don't like how swingy it is. I don't like that it either does nothing or just kind of screws your opponent over. I think having that on a land is sort of extra uh, problematic. Um, so I just, eh, I, I don't really like this card. It's also the only one of the cycle that's only good on offense. Um, each of the others can make your creatures better on defense or offense and kind of influence the game plan more. This really only helps if you're trying to attack in and win. Um, so, eh, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty cool on this card comparatively. Yeah, that, that offense point is uh, is fair. I noticed this is the only one you don't have as an That's correct. Um, the, that offense point is, is fair, but that feels kind of right for black, right? To just be on the attack, to be bad at blocking and defending generally there is a pretty strong i feel like kind of grindy spirits uh black green deck in this format um but yeah i I think having a sort of suicide deck is certainly well in black's color pie i don't love this card i i kind of like it you know we've discussed our our fear of fear in this cube and how it's not that interesting of a mechanic obviously one that's been retired in modern magic uh, but Shizo to me feels like a, a relatively reasonable way of having fear as an option. You know, you can give it to a creature, but it has to be legendary. You have to be in black to do it, which, you know, I guess you have to be in black to get fear anyway. But like to me, this feels more reasonable than something like Dance of Shadows or another kind of or, or a card that just has fear all the time. Um this like gives you the option, but you have to have this the circumstances set up for it. Like kind of kind of having Shizo there as like a, a sneaky finisher if you have the black legendary creature to give it to feels I don't, fair is the wrong word, but like more reasonable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, it's also distinguished by the most uh, badass name of the cycle, Death's Storehouse. While it's extremely hard to say, is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. It's also, somewhat to my surprise, the number one most played of this cycle in 26,000 decks. Minamo comes close to 23,000, and then the other three are well, well off. I'm a little surprised this is played more than Minamo, considering the popularity of blue uh, in EDH, and the fact that like untapping things honestly seems more sort of generally synergistic and interesting than randomly giving a thing fear. Yeah, but I, I mean, I could see an EDH, you know, giving fear to your commander specifically. And then using that as a way to close out the game. 
with commander damage. Yeah, all right. I can I can sort of buy that. Looks like a lot of that is with Phage, uh, which makes sense. Pretty cool flavor text on here, too. Yeah, go. You want to read it? Yeah. It says, centuries ago, Shizo was a verdant field of wildflowers. After 891 samurai died in a single battle on its grasses, it became a haunted moor. It's kind of cool and also very weirdly specific. 891 samurai. And they're all still there, I guess. Yeah, it also kind of... Um... It does a sort of nice light job of educating you to a little bit of how Kamigawa works. You know, the way that the actions of mortals have this kind of spiritual impact on the land, which in turn sort of connects to the spirits. Like, I think that's a, it's a nice little quiet education and sort of the rules of Kamigawa. Yeah. Though again, like, like Okina, this doesn't really seem to matter anywhere else in the set. Yeah. Are there any other references to Shizo? Uh, Let me go look. There is Shire, uh, Shizo's caretaker in Betrayers. Um, very cool art. Very cool art. Pretty cool, interesting card. Um, and that's it. Doesn't appear in any flavor text. Yeah, it's kind of like they forgot to make iconic green and black locations <laughs> to go with the, the white and blue and to yeah. a lesser extent red ones. Yeah, and then they, they sort of came back later and said, oh, we, we got to make at least one card that like mentions right, these. Yeah, we got to make this cycle feel like it. Uh, like it matters thematically. Um, yeah, I'm fine with playable on this. I think this is pretty darn playable. All right, let's call it playable. Okay, coming up on the second to last Napland, Tranquil Garden. Uh, tap to add one to your mana pool or tap to add green or white and then doesn't untap during your next untap step. You know how it goes now. The art on this, you you alluded to it earlier. I think we can agree that on not being big fans of this one. Yeah, I think it's maybe... It might be worse than Pinecrest even for me. It's close. But like to me, this is really... Well, first, it really feels like a spell effect. Like The focus is firmly on this giant beam of light opening in this forest. So I think that's a little bit of a miss. But also just... I find the art almost like goofy. Like It doesn't look like a real place. It looks very sort of... Yeah. Almost like a collage or something. Like it just... The, the proportions and the angles. and It just doesn't have any sense of place. It just feels... Yeah, not not real. Not grounded. Like aside from the the sort of trimmed Japanese garden style trees, which are kind of a nice touch. Like other than that, uh, this feels like a super generic fantasy painting that should have like a unicorn <laughs> dancing around in the beam of light in the middle, or like some gnomes walking <laughs> along the path. <laughs> right? Like, couldn't you picture some gnomes walking toward a unicorn in the middle there? Um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I hadn't really thought about you. Could, you could see it right now. Um, generic, yeah, I I do see generic though. It also feels like something that could just appear as like some slush art in like a PC game. Yeah, the scales here are kind of hard to understand too because the trees that are kind of in the middle, not quite in the background, but the kind of middle mid ground trees, they're sort of mm-hmm. like they look gigantic just in the way their their trunks are shaped and their branches are shaped. But then you look at the path next to them, and it's like, okay, I guess they're like. 15 feet tall, but then the trees in the foreground are like a different style of tree that looks pretty short. Like the, the sense of scale is kind of off here, which is a weird thing in a John Avon painting. You normally expect him to really nail all those kind of core technical details. Uh, honestly, all of these Naplands, except maybe Lantern Lake Graveyard, feel like he was phoning it in. Well, I just, I think Watervale Cavern is also bomb diggity. Yeah, this this one for sure does not feel like his most. Maybe he maybe he somehow saw what the printed text was going to be, and he's like, okay, these no one's going to care. Remember these cards? There's no point. Yeah, trying. I was like, uh, uh, 
won't try too hard on this. Put my energy elsewhere. Yeah, let's uh, let's put our energy <laughs> elsewhere. All right, just cut this. Sounds good. All right, our last real uh, card of the set, because our last card will be another Napland. Uh, our last real card is... Can't believe it. Un Taidake, the Cloud Keeper. Legendary land, enters the battlefield tapped. Tap, pay two life, add two to your mana pool. Spend this mana only to play legendary spells. Uh, um, this card is really interesting and unique. You know, it's kind of like a Temple of the False God uh, with the uh, upside that you don't need a certain number of lands and the downside that you have to pay a lot of life and it only works for legends, which are both pretty significant downsides. I think they're both especially significant downsides in this set. Many, I don't know about numbers, but let's say at least half of the champion's legendaries are double pip or even triple pip, which makes this like pretty tough to work with. I think a lot of times this isn't going to actually help accelerate you that well. One cute thing is it can help you cast uh, the shrines, the Hondans, which, you know, that's that's cute because they're legendary. But I think like Hall of the Bandit Lord and Boseju, this just fundamentally fails on not having an opt-out mode. Like if you could just tap this for colorless, I think it would be okay. But you have to, not only on this one do you have to pay life, but you have to spend the two mana only on legendaries. Like if you don't have any legendary spells, this does stone nothing. And that that just feels like a bridge too far. Yeah, I think that makes this much more egregious for me than Boseju or Hall of the Bandit Lord. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> At true. least with those, you know, once you get it out and untap it, you can spend the mana on anything, even if you're not getting the the benefit. Like in an emer- you can still crack it in an emergency and, and use it for that. This, like not only does it come in tapped, not only do you have to pay two life, but you can only use it for legendary spells. That is a lot of drawbacks to have on one land. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a sort of insurmountable number of drawbacks, unfortunately. I, I feel like uh, the community as a whole is sort of uh, aligned in judgment on this card. Uh, for a card that cares about legendaries, uh, this is sees very little EDH play. It's just in just 2,600 decks, which is uh, basically nothing. Uh, almost all of those plays seem to be in sort of legend synergy decks, like Reiki decks or decks that are built around the legendary sorceries from Dominaria. Like this card is just never, it seems, made an impression anywhere the other weird thing here to me is the flavor like we appear to be looking at a sort of mile tie high uh spire which would suggest this is a pretty important place in kamigawa but i think this is the only reference to this card this is a a super weird card for me <laughs> flavor wise like it's this huge spire and then you look at the flavor text and it says untaidake is the needle that weaves the fabric of creation that sounds important like that sounds <laughs> pretty important but there is not a single other reference to this that i know of on any nope. other cards just checked not in any flavor text not in any names just nothing yeah so it it gets no mention anywhere it doesn't seem to matter anywhere uh it's only purpose on kamigawa appears to be summoning legendary creatures and it's it's also pretty strange artistically this is another john avon one but it's it's kind of weird and off-putting to me that this you know gigantic spire miles high like stretching you can see it stretching up and piercing the clouds like this thing is huge but it sort of appears in this uh this placeless kind of biome yeah like there are there are some sort of mountains and hills around there's kind of a lake in the foreground with i guess some floating ice on it so are we up in the mountains are we on a plateau uh, are there other, like, is there a place in Kamigawa where there's, like, frozen lakes and stuff? Because we haven't seen that on other cards either. 
So this feels like it's it's in some forgotten corner of the world where nothing else is happening. Um, but I guess I guess legends are being summoned out of this big spire, and then they go off to somewhere else. You know, the more I stare at it, the more it makes me think of the ice spikes biome in Minecraft. Oh man, you're Isn't right. That, that'd be a big ice. That'd spike. be a super cool big ice spike. We should do a Minecraft server where we recreate all the lands of Champions of Kamigawa. Wow, that's 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 our next project. We'll stream it. <laughs> we'll spend nine hundred hours creating recreating legendary scenes like Untaidake, the Cloud Keeper, and Pinecrest. I Ridge. think just this would take us take us nine hundred hours, a lot. and then we we'd finish it and we'd we'd go show it off, and people would say, "What? What is that? Oh, that's from Magic: The Gathering." Yeah, it's which which set in <laughs> it weaves the what, ne- what the card? fabric of creation. It's the needle. <laughs> everyone knows this this is where legends come from yeah uh, it, it's funny there's this little trend i'm noticing as we review these of like legendary supposedly iconic creations that never never appear in the set yeah it it really makes all of these lands feel kind of sad and forgotten or a sad and forgotten or are we just sort of uncovering forgotten lore well that's that's what i mean like we're not sad about them it's sad that they are they have been forgotten. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. I feel like I forgot to close the loop on. We talked about how many references each of these cards have, and we, but we forgot to say for Shinka, the red one. Shinka <laughs> appears in three cards: in the Web of War, Shinka Gatekeeper, and Ayumi, the Last Visitor. Again, the legendary Landwalk. They sh- they shoehorned two <laughs> forgotten lands into her flavor text just to get them out of the way. That is impressive. Yeah. Well, that's that's a little. Uh little guidepost for you so you know how to use her. It is kind of cute that she has legendary land walk and references to legendary lands. That's, that's pretty good, whoever did that. Yep. Uh, th- this is probably an instacut, though, eh, Connor? Yeah. Uh, our last card in Kamigawa, and it's an instacut. That hurts. Yeah, uh, not even not even a close no, one. Just, like like a, just clearly, clearly just bad. A bad card. We do have one more card to talk about, though. We sure do. We've got Watervale Cavern. The last of the cards in Kamigawa... The last of the Naplands, the last of the lands. The iconic last of the uh, Naplands. <laughs> the last Napland <laughs> ever printed. Yeah. <laughs> and the last one that we will ever talk about so. and that you, the listener, may ever hear about. Watervale Cavern. Tap to add one or tap to add blue or black. And then it doesn't untap. Uh, obviously an Instacut. Yeah. But, okay, I, I will take back what I said on the last one. This art is pretty banging. Yeah, this art is super banging. You want to talk about it? Uh, it, it's it's pretty hard to describe. I mean, it's it's obviously a cavern with, I guess, sort of a large hole, a large cave hole in the middle with water pouring out of it. Uh, looks like there's you know a waterfall in the cavern, and there may maybe light streaming in from far, far above. Uh, it's it's very dark, but not in a particularly th- like threatening way. It's really pretty. Yeah, and there's sort of these like scudding black clouds, even though we're underground. Yeah, those are a little threatening. Yeah, there's these black like birds that are only appear in silhouette. Like I, I, I kind of like what you said about not particularly threatening because it honestly it kind of makes you want to go explore. Like you, you have to look at it for a second to realize right. that behind these like like piercing lights, that there's a, a cavern mouth opening back into the art. Uh, and so the the fact that it took me at least a second or two to notice that I think makes 
makes for a kind of more mysterious, compelling piece where you want to go explore it. You want to go see what's going on. It, it really kind of draws me in. It makes me, it makes me want to like, you know, put together a little D and D adventure or something, or use this as some key art to show somebody when I'm like, all right, you approach the entrance to the cave. And then I show them the picture. Yeah. That's, that's a great point. It does. It looks like something you want to, you and your party of adventurers want to go delving into. Yeah. Super, super cool art. Um, also, just to close on our traditional obscure trivia notes, Magic has one card with Mist Veil in its name and three cards with Water Veil. So obviously that means Water Veil uh, is better and is more important. Um, Mist Veil Plains is a uh, weird land from uh, Shadowmoor that we won't talk about. Um, but Water Veil, there are two Water Veil cards. They're both in Zendikar, and that is a named location within Zendikar. And so, Connor, I think where this cave leads mm. is it leads you onto Zendikar from Kamigawa. I think you must be right. I think so, too. I think we... You just you just cracked into the Matrix yeah, here. Someone go update the MTG wiki to make this true. Um, but I'm pretty sure this is true. We might do that <laughs> after this episode. Thank you. All right. That's an Instacut, though, right? We agreed. All the Naplands, regardless of great art. They're all Instacuts. They're all Instacuts in our, our final card of the entire set three instacuts in a row to close out the review it it feels it feels kind of fitting for for kevin gala thematic nice so austin that may be the end of the cards and champions of kamigawa for us but that is not the end of today's episode we have a full second segment to go through That's right. Yeah. So we've uh, we've nodded at this in a whole bunch of episodes, um, but this is the segment where we're going to design or talk about the mana base for the cube. We put a lot of thought into this initially because it felt weird to include cards from outside Champions of Kamigawa or Champions of Kamigawa block or even uh, Neon Dynasty and just go out and pick lands from across Magic. But the more we thought about it the, and the more we play tested, the more it felt necessary. Um, the mana fixing in this set, as you just saw with the Naplands, is terrible. It's really, really slow. It's really bad. It's pretty unreliable. It only supports the allied color pairs. Um, there's a lot of challenges with relying on the set um, for mana fixing. And we're both believers that generally a cube environment is better when the mana fixing is better. It's not very fun to not be able to cast your spells. And obviously, a sort of uh, having some scarcity of mana fixing, I think, is part of the feel of the format, but not to the extent that you just get bricked on colors and can't cast anything. Uh, and so in the spirit of cube, uh, we're going to be looking beyond the borders of Kamigawa here and talking about what other cycles of lands we want to pull in uh, to make the mana bases for our decks work. Yeah, should be fun. Yeah, so a couple of goals before we get into which uh, which cycles we're considering, we considered and which we ultimately landed on. Um, a couple of the key things we, we kept in mind. Uh, the first, uh, and I think one of the most important, particularly if you're relatively new to magic is that this set was designed well before color pairs became a dominant limited design philosophy. So starting, I don't know, maybe around five to 10 years ago, wizards realized that they had this sort of built-in tool of color pairs that they could design a limited format around. And so not every, but many, many magic sets now are built in a way where if you look at the uncommons, there's 10 gold uncommons, one for each of the 10 color pairs. And they, each of those uncommons sort of guides you to what that color pair is supposed to be about. You know, the black-green uncommon, if the um, black-green in that set is about graveyard recursion, we'll do something nifty with graveyard recursion. If white and red are about equipment, the white and red uncommon will do something with equipment. And so they 
guide you and show you as a drafter, here's the path you're supposed to go down. That did not exist at all back in this set. And in fact, if you look at the um, set, the color pairings just aren't really a thing. There's not very much sort of conscious shared design space across colors, and it's very unevenly split. So some pairings are pretty good and quite synergistic, like black, green, um, soul shift works really well. There's a ton of spirits in both colors. There's a ton of soul shift. There's a lot of value you can build out of it. And then there's other color pairings like say, I don't know, blue, green, that just have no identity at all. They don't have much synergy. They don't have much thematic overlap. You could shove them both into a deck, but they don't, they don't play together very naturally. Yeah. For for sure, I was uh, blue green is exactly the the combination I was thinking of for something where there there's no real overlap. Yeah, they just care about totally different things. They don't support each other. They just don't they don't really do much to help one another out. Along those lines, then one of the things we want to be careful to do here is to make two color decks easier because you pretty much have to go two colors to make this uh, comparatively weak card pool work for you. But what we don't want to do is enable three or four or five color piles. Gold is just not part of this set's identity. There's only, I think, what, two gold cards in the entire set? Mm -hmm. They very consciously excluded gold cards or multicolored cards from the set because they wanted Ravnica, which came after it, to feel really special. Uh, And so we don't want decks to feel like they're dominated by kind of multicolor shenanigans. What we're really looking for is your kind of classic, solid, workmanlike, two-color magic decks. Uh, And then the final key point, I think, is We don't want to accelerate the natural tempo of the format. This is a pretty slow format. The cards are weak. The cards tend to be a little bit expensive. It tends to be quite grindy. So we don't want to um, say, we'll get into this in just a second, but this isn't, I think, really the place for the kind of classic fetches, original duels, and shocks mana base. Like that is too fast, too efficient, too, uh, yeah, too good for really what Kamigawa is looking for from its mana base. We also don't want to slow it down too much either. There are aggro decks in this format, white-red, for example, uh, and we don't want to just totally stomp on those decks. We want to leave some room for faster decks to be able to get in ahead of their opponent, cast their spells, and maybe um, undermine one of the slower, grindier decks like Soul Shift. Right, and I I think maybe the, the sweet spot that we're aiming for is... You know, to have the kind of mana base that makes a uh, two-color deck fun and viable, that is going to to highlight a lot of the cool cards that we've been talking about, uh, but that isn't going to change sort of the the natural speed and the feel of Kamigawa. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, should we talk, Connor, about the kind of major cycles of lands we considered? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so first up, I got six quick ones that I just ruled out immediately, basically for being too good. Um, These are all cube staples. These are all uh, great land cycles, but I just don't think they have a place in our cube. First, as I mentioned, the original duels, the shock lands, and the fast lands, or and the fetch lands, all of those, in my view, are just too fast. They make it uh, too reliable to accelerate. They often, particularly when used in combination, make it a little too easy to branch beyond two colors. Um, I, I just don't think any of these uh, cards have a place in this cube. Totally agree. For similar reasons, the triomes um, from uh, Ikoria and uh, Streets of New Capenna, we also excluded. We're not trying to enable three color decks, including them would send a really weird message. And the man lands also are on the chopping block. I love the man lands. They're one of my all-time favorite uh, land cycles, um, but they are just too good. <laughs> um, they are good even in like the MTGO Vintage Cube. Like Cards like Celestial Colonnade are 
like the creatures you get with these are better than most of the creatures you get on creatures in uh, Champions of Kamigawa. I just don't think we can include those without really distorting the format. Oh, man. That's that's so sad when you put it that right? way. But true. But like, yeah, like Celestial Colonnade, like 3WU for a 4-4 flyer. Like, oh my gosh. Yes, please. Yep. <laughs> Like that, that is that is better than most of the the flying spirits you're going to find here. Um, and then one other uh, that we just cut on, or that we'll cut on power level, is the thriving lands. Uh, this is a little more of an obscure cycle, so if you're not familiar with it, these are the ones that. But for example, the white one, it taps for white. It enters the battlefield tapped, and then when it enters, you choose a second color um, that it can tap for as well. Um, these aren't exactly too powerful, but they make it a little too easy to go into multiple colors and more. Uh, importantly, in my view, they're kind of hard to understand. They actually play a lot like kind of rainbow lands. They can sort of, because they can tap for anything, it's often correct to include them even in a deck where you're not playing uh, their primary color just because they can fix for anything. Uh, And I just think that kind of like, A, I don't really like that. As we mentioned earlier with um, the nap lands, I don't really like cards that are that sort of circular and difficult to understand. And also, we don't want to make five colors easy. And these, they don't make it easy exactly, but they make it a little easier than we want them to be. Right. Okay. Connor, any objections to my uh, my quick cuts there on power level? Nope. I, I think those should all go. Okay. Then I have um, three to five that I've ruled out on aesthetics, um, some of which are like literal visual aesthetics, but more of which are just, I don't like them. So here are my arbitrary, I don't like them cards. <laughs> First, the Pathways cycle, um, double face cards. Uh, pathways, uh, in case you're not familiar, are the um, recent Zendikar uh, lands that can come into play as either, say, a white land or a blue land based on being two-sided. I don't think double face cards have any place in this cube. That would just be weird. That would be super weird. <laughs> like, it's it's that's way too modern of an innovation uh, for us to have here where, especially with having the flip cards mm-hmm. in this set where, you know, that was kind of a, a wild new way of, of putting a magic card together in a time when like having a two face card was sort of unimaginable with the way that printing was done then. Uh, I feel like those would be totally wrong <laughs> for, for what this cube is meant to evoke. I think it might also be sort of hurtful for the flip cards in the cube. It would be like salt in the wound that they'd been replaced by this later technology. <laughs> Yeah, I think it would be really hard for them because they're just, you know, they're like literally half of a uh, two-sided oh, card man. is. Yeah. What if we uh, What if we designed like custom pathways that are flip cards instead? <laughs> Can you imagine how confusing <laughs> that sounds like a lot? That of work. would be too to try to track which kind of taps for. Oh no! You just you'd be continually spinning it <laughs> clockwise. Well, that's interesting. It was <laughs> alternate. Oh no! That, that was an island. Now we're talking. Now we are talking. Okay, two more that I want to cut just really based on me not liking them and I don't have good reasons. Uh, the reveal lands, uh, that is the ones where you can reveal one of the types of basic lands that they tap for, for them to come into play ta- untapped, otherwise they come into play tapped. And the snow- slow lands, uh, these are the ones that come into play tapped unless you control two or more other lands. Uh, I just don't like these cards. Uh, I don't have really anything more nuanced to say except I don't enjoy playing with them. Um, I don't like that the reveal lands, depending on what's in your hand, that feels like a weird feel bad to me somehow much more so than the check lands, even though it's sort of similar. Uh, and the slow lands, like, to me, mana fixing is an early game problem, not a late game problem, or at least it matters a lot more early game. And so coming to play untapped late game is like, uh, and so I, I don't like either of these cycles and I don't want to include them. Fair enough. Okay, and then last of all, we've got the bridge lands. Uh, those are the artifact uh, duels from Modern Horizons 2 and the snow duels from Kaldheim. Um, those are just really strong themes that would be really confusing in our cube. Yep. 
All right. So those are the easy cuts. Let's talk about the cycles that, in my view, deserve at least some consideration. Uh, and these are roughly from uh, least viable to most viable. First up, we've got the Horizon Lands. The Horizon Lands, uh, these are named after Horizon Canopy, although all the other ones are enemy colors. Uh, and these, of course, are the lands that tap, pay one life to add one mana of their two colors, or you can pay one, tap them, and sack them to draw a card. Uh, these are wonderful lands in my view. They play really well. They impose some interesting trade-off questions with having to pay life and not having a colorless mode that doesn't require paying life. Um, I like that you can cash them in. They're awkward in this set though, in part because they only fix for enemy colors. Um, and this is part of the era, Ch Kamigawa is part of the era of magic where Wizards was still biased towards ally colors. And that feels weird nowadays, uh, really weird. But for the first I don't know, 15 years of magic, wizards generally treated the enemy colors as sort of pairings as secondary. Like Golgari would not get as much fixing as Celestia would. Uh, and that feels odd aesthetically, but it's just the way it is. And so to me, having a cycle that biases towards the enemy colors just feels sort of aesthetically wrong. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair point. And yeah, I mean, it, especially in a in a set where there's there's almost no consideration given to color pairings at all, like let alone enemy colors, it it would be kind of awkward to have those in. Mm -hmm. I also think these are sort of on the border of too powerful. Um, I don't think they're quite there. I don't think they're like amazing, but I think they're uh, they're pretty darn good lands and they're just maybe a little too fast and a little too efficient for Kamigawa. Yeah, they're they're very flexible compared to um, some of the lands we just talked yeah, about 100%. from the set. Okay. Uh, next up, we have uh, what are often called the gain lands. These are just tap lands that gain you one life when they enter. Um, these are not good cards. Uh, the only thing I'll say in their defense is they have Neon Dynasty versions. Uh, this whole cycle was reprinted in Neon Dynasty, so we would be able to have be able to have mana fixing lands that all have Kamigawa themed art. And so while I think these are unlikely to make the grade because gaining one life is just not good enough, it, it, that really hurts me because they're all Kamigawa themed. <laughs> and they largely have banging art. They do, uh, and the the art on really all of these is great. But to be fair, none of none of this art is like especially OG Kamigawa. It's looking. true, yeah. You know, you look at Jungle Hollow, Dismal Blackwater, especially they're like very very cool and nice to look at, but like do not fit the aesthetic of these other cards. That's true. All. A lot of these are pretty cyberpunky in a way that would be, I think, a bit jarring. Right. All right, so I think we can pass over the gain lands as well. They're good, uh, decent enough lands, but there's a reason these don't appear in many cubes. Uh, then we come to the filter lands. Um, there are two land cycles often called the filter lands. There's the original Odyssey filter lands, which are garbage, and I'm not going to talk about them more. Um, and then there is the Shadowmoor Eventide uh, filter lands. Bear with me if you're not familiar with these. They're a little complex, um, but basically they can tap for colorless, or you can pay a hybrid mana and tap them to get two of any combination of colors from that color pair. So for example, Cascade Bluffs, you can pay blue or red and tap it to get blue, 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 red, or red, red. These are funky. Uh, I think one thing I like about them in this context is they push you quite firmly into two color territory. They're not super useful if you're trying to go into a three or four color or five color deck, but in two colors, they fix in every combination of things you need. And so I think that is kind of nice. And then aesthetically, obviously these are all lore winny, but this is somewhat close in time to the release of Kamigawa. And so aesthetically, I think they fit in a little better than a lot of these later land cycles. They look like Kamigawa art style, if not Kamigawa scenes, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I, I can kind of see it. There's some very strange ones like Cascade Bluffs, especially. <laughs> it's like, what's even going on there? Um, yeah, Mystic Gate. We have a, a Kith. Yeah, that, that's a little jarring. Right would be a little jarring. That'd be yeah, it'd be a little strange. But um, yeah, I, I I agree that these are some of the more interesting duels, and they um, I, I I I like that they you know do something other than just adding a single mana of one of two colors. You know it. It gives you some some interesting options. Yeah, for sure. Um, these do have some other arts. Uh, I think there's uh, one other set of arts for most of them in Zendikar Expeditions. Although I think a lot of those are pretty Zendikari with like floating hedrons. So eh, maybe doesn't get us much closer. Okay, moving on up the list. Now we're getting into the real contenders. The Pain Lands. Uh, the Pain Lands is like the second cycle of decent mana fixing ever printed. So we had the OG duels and alpha, which are too good. And then we get the pain lands. So the pain lands are tap, add colorless, and then tap, add say white or blue. This deals one damage to you. These cards sound worse than they are if you somehow haven't played with them, although I think that's hard to do. They tend to be pretty decent. You can usually kind of jigger things so you're not taking too much damage off of them. They come into play untapped, which is great. That means they're fast enough to help aggro out a little bit. Um, the other thing I'll say about them is the OG magic flavor here is kind of off the charts in the sense that this cycle goes all the way back to like Ice Age. And so uh, they feel very OG magic in that sense. Although many of them have, uh, the ally ones have the names Adarkar Wastes, Caves of Koilos, Carplusen Forest, Lanawar Wastes, and uh, I'm sorry, the enemy one. Uh, no, it's a mix. And Yavimaya Coasts. And so about half of these have like super, super Dominaria names, which might be a little jarring. Don't forget Shivan oh, Reef. Yeah, Shivan Reef too. Thank you. And then there's Brushland. <laughs> it's always bugged me that six of these have like hyper specific names, and then like three or four of them, like Brushland, Sulfurous Springs, and uh, Underground River, are just like anything, any kind of magic card name. Very strange. Oh, and Battlefield Forge. Yeah, I mean, Brushland is such an alpha kind of. I name. agree. I feel like Brushland and Underground River are like kind of feel like what their respective original duels could have been called. Right. Yeah, but I, I think the Pain Lands are, are, to me, a very strong contender here. Okay, next up we have the Ravnica Bounce Lands. So the Bounce Lands are a funny, funky land cycle. So Azorius Chancery, for example, reads, enters tapped. When it enters, return a land you control to its owner's hand. Tap, add white, blue to your mana pool. First off, these are aesthetically tough. Every single one of them has the name of a Ravnica guild in them. <laughs> there are no printings that don't have the name of a Ravnica guild in them. So it's really like, here's some Ravnica in your Kamigawa cube. Yep, little on the nose. Pretty on the nose. Uh, the flip side is these are pretty powerful without being overbearing. Um, they can essentially let you perhaps shave a land if you get a couple of them or sort of soft ramp, right? Because one of these plus another land in your opening hand means you have access to three mana. Um, and there's basically no other lands in the history of magic to do that. Um, so these are really unique kind of powerful effects. That's a little dangerous. Enough of them in one place can lead to these kind of rampy piles that don't even have to play green in order to ramp. But they're also slow and create, I think, a nice tension where lower the ground decks can sneak in underneath you. Like you really, um, if you commit to these, you're committing to taking a lot of turns pretty much off. Uh, and I think that creates some nice, interesting counterplay with, say, aggro. All right. That takes us on to the temples, um, also known as the Scrylands. Uh, so the temples are, they enter the battlefield tapped. When they enter, you scry one, and then they tap for one of two colors. I like the name here, Temple. Sounds very Kamigawa. Uh, the art, unfortunately, is uniformly not Kamigawa. Most of these are pretty Theros-y. They're pretty Greek mythology. So again, uh, most of these, the flavor and the art in particular is a little bit tough. I do think the play patterns here are pretty great. 
Um, scrying is just enough of a perk to ease the pain of entering tapped. Um, these play very nicely. No one would ever accuse them of being too good, but they're solid. And they also are nice because you get a little bit of card selection. And this is an environment where there's not a lot of card selection. There's not a lot of ways to manipulate your draws or even get extra draws out of your deck. Uh, and so I think they're nice in that sense that they help you kind of set up um, and they're not as bad a feel in the late game as most lands would be. You at least go, well, I can make sure the next draw isn't a land. And that's kind of cute. It would be kind of nice to have a li- kind of nice, kind of weird to have a little bit of scry in Kamigawa. It was <laughs> a mechanic that was introduced in Mirrodin and then lay dormant uh, and now is just a part of magic. It would be good to have that card selection in. Yeah, it's funny uh, you mentioned that. There is this... It's funny we think of Scry now. To me, Scry is like the wallpaper, right? It's just like a core tool that they use constantly. It's funny how they rolled it out right. in Fifth Dawn to some hoopla, but just like in the last set of Mirrodin Block, the weirdest, le- by far least popular set, and then they're like, "All right, let's this is let's not touch this for a while." Yeah, you know, it's just odd because to me, Scry is not like I don't know. It's not like you know some. It's not like more for something where it's some complicated, very thematically precise very unique mechanic it's just like a glue mechanic and yet they treat it as kind of precious for a while yeah yeah and and now it you know it, it feels like it it's just a part of the game and maybe should always have been but i i think you made a good point that they're like just there there just weren't those those card selection options all over the place in this era of magic like there are mm-hmm. today yeah and we, i think we wouldn't want to go too far with that because you know one of the things that does make this different is that uh this era different is that you don't have card advantage stapled to every single card. Right. But uh, these yeah. are <laughs> scrying one is not, uh, is not that powerful. I think, I think a little bit of it can go a long way here. Alrighty. Um, few more cycles to go. Next up, we have the bicycle lands. They're sometimes called, um, which is a great pun by two colors cycle. They're cycling lands. Great. Um, <laughs> these are a funny one. They only exist in ally colors. They were from Amonkhet block. And so far we have not received the enemy color companions, even though it's been like five years. I don't really know why, because it's a pretty solid uh, set. These are uh, Enter the Battlefield Tap Lands that cycle for two. Uh, And interestingly, they have the basic land type. So, for example, Irrigated Farmland is a Plains Island, so it taps for white or blue, and it can cycle for two. Um, These cards play great. I think, like the Temples, they're going to play particularly well in this environment. Um, They'll give you just a little bit of card selection. They'll give you just a little bit of smoothing um, without really you know, being overpowered or doing anything too disruptive. I think they're going to just just slot in nicely and help smooth out some games. Um, the fact that they're only available in ally colors, I think is a feature more than a bug. Um, it's going to be kind of funny to have like three or four cycles that are available in all four, 10 color pairs and then one that's only available in the ally color pairs. But in this case, I kind of like that. I think it it helps tilt you slightly towards ally colors in a way that feels appropriate to the era. I will say cycling feels kind of funny in Kamigawa. It feels weird to have some cycling cards, but I, I think no one's going to care about that except me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like Scry where, you know, it was a, a much more limited mechanic back in this time uh, that's now been broadly introduced, but a little bit. I feel like we can have a little bit of it in here and it'll kind of smooth things out. All right, just two more big cycles to go. Next up, we have the check lands. Um, these are the ones that check for um, whether you have a, a land of their corresponding basic land types. So, for example, Glacial Fortress um, enters the battlefield tapped unless you control a plains or island, and then it taps for white or blue. These are another one that's, to me, just in the perfect sweet spot um, for power. 
Uh, they're basically best in two color decks here because we're not going to have dual lands or um, triomes in here to make these easier to turn on. So unless you're in their appropriate two colors, they're going to be kind of bad, uh, which I think is good. I think it's a little like the um, the filter lands where it helps push you in the right direction. If you've played with these in standard, um, I think they're substantially worse in this environment than they would have been in standard printings. Um, last time I think they were in standard, they appeared alongside the shock lands. Uh, and so they pretty easily enabled these three color mana bases. And I don't think they'll do that here. I think they'll be like just a solid two color fixer. Uh, they also have really generic names and largely pretty generic art uh, with a few exceptions, which I think is nice. Uh, they're not too aesthetically disruptive. So it's it's interesting to me that you you feel pretty positive about the check lands, but the uh, reveal lands, which are you know kind of a, a similar similar mechanically in that they're you know checking for whether you have a certain type of land, uh, but in the hand rather than in play. Uh, why why do you think you feel so differently about those two these two cycles? That's a good question. So I think to me the check lands are sort of on for more of the game. So the reveal lands, you know, you've got to be in a very specific place where, for example, you can end up with this feel bad on a reveal land where you, um, let's say it cares about um, planes or islands. You have a planes in your hand, you play it. The next turn you draw a reveal land that looks for planes and you go, ah, I shouldn't have played my planes. I feel like a fool. You know, they create these kind of like feel bad moments that you really can't play around. And they also are pretty well guaranteed to come into tapped. They create a little more frustration in my view um, than these do. These And these are also a little more, you know, I, I kind of like lands that don't require a ton of thinking. You know, I feel like lands shouldn't be where you right. invest a ton. And these don't ask you to like have some kind of elaborate plot. They're either on or they're not. And I think I kind of like that. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. And then last up near the top of the list, we have the fast lands. Um, the fast lands uh, come into play tapped. Only if you control two or fewer other lands. So they're the inverse of the slow lands we talked about earlier. Um, the fast lands are pretty good. They're one of the more widely played, I guess you'd say, second tier land cycles. I like them because, as I said earlier, I believe fixing matters a little more to fast decks than slow decks. Uh, and these help the fast decks a little more while still being perfectly viable for the slow decks. They have, uh, I think, a really good just sweet spot power-wise. The names here are nice and generic. They're names like um, Blooming Marsh. Botanical Sanctum, Dark Slick Shores, Razor Verge Thicket. So that's great. Um, the arts here are uh, anything but generic. They tend to, they're all like very Miradini or Kaladeshi or Zendikari in the expeditions. They're all like really, really strongly thematic and I think sort of jarring, which is a small point against them, but not disqualifying. And uh, earlier when we were talking about um, kind of some of the, the nap lands being a little bit less on the nose about, you know, here's a combination of a, a swamp and a mountain. These fast lands are the exact opposite. <laughs> what they are, what I was thinking about uh, when we were talking about Lantern Lake Graveyard. Uh, if you look at Black Cleave Cliffs, for example, the flavor text. This is a Scars of Mirrodin printing. Uh, the flavor text says, says where the Oxida chain mingles with the Methadros, so mountains and swamps. Oil suffused metal crumbles away, leaving walls of blackened bones. So these lands are all like literally. Here is where land A meets land B. <laughs> Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you don't like, you feel like that's not as interesting. That's, it's, yeah, it's just, it's a little too on the nose for me. Like, here is a, a plains and a mountain. Here is a swamp and an island. And, like, the, the way we are going to represent that is literally at the point where those two things meet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I know what you mean, and I feel the same way. That's my contribution to the mana base. All right. Uh, so that is all of our land cycles. So as far as actually designing the mana base then, so we are looking at 
about 45 um, major color fix, 45 to 55, I haven't decided on the exact number, major color fixing lands. So the final size of the cube, I think is going to be around 350 to 400. Uh, and I like to have around 15% of a cube be um, lands. And so that would suggest, again, somewhere between 45 and 60 lands in the cube or color fixing lands in the cube. Um, as I said, color fixing is a little bit precious here. So that would bias us towards a lower number um, in the limited environment or in the retail environment. The flip side of that is that in a typical cube mana base, you almost always have the fetches and the shocks and often the duels, which means your individual lands actually pack a little bit more of a punch. Cards like the Triomes too, all of these things let you um, flex into multiple colors. They can support color pairings outside of the two that they nominally support based on their printing. And so you sort of have a virtual higher density of mana fixing because, for example, if you have a fetch land that can fetch red, green, and you get a um, uh, math, hold on, I'm trying to describe it. You have a fetch land that can get red, green, and you find a like green, white shock land, that can still be fixing. You can still sort of piece together these complex fetch dual shock mana bases um, from that. On the other hand, all of our dual lands here are going to fix for exactly two colors, no more, no less. And so I think that argues for actually a higher density of uh, mana fixing than some other cubes would have in order to ensure um, that players can reliably cast their spells. So hmm. I think that's a very good point. The um, the mana base that we I've settled on then is we're going to include, as we said earlier, one each of each of the Champions of Kamigawa legendary lands. We're going to include one each of the bicycle lands, the fast lands, the temples, the check lands, and the bounce lands. So bounces, checks, temples, fast lands, and bicycle lands. I think I will say almost certainly the right answer to this is more nuanced. I think most of the time when you're designing a cube, you don't want to just straight mirror your land cycles across all 10 colors, because as we've been alluding to, different color combinations, different decks need different things. An aggro deck needs faster lands than a controlling color, which might value, for example, scry much more highly. Um, whereas a fast deck like white, red, or black, red really doesn't care that much about scry. It just wants to cast its things early on curve and run over its opponent. So I think the right answer here is going to involve swapping some of these individual cards out for some of the land cycles we cut, like the pain lands, um, like perhaps the filter lands, perhaps even a horizon land, if there's a particularly underpowered <laughs> combination that could use something better. Uh, and so we'll do some massaging of this mana base um, down the line based on playtesting. I don't think that'll necessarily rise to a full episode, but it might be as we play the cube more, we do a little bit more massaging to make sure each color combination has lands that support its goals. Lastly, we want to include a little bit of five color fixing. As we said, this is not a gold format. This is not a format where we want to make five color decks easy. Um, but we do want to have just a little bit because A, it can help any deck fix for mana and B, we do have the Hondans in here and they sort of ask you to act like this is a five color format. The five color lands that we've picked are largely lower pow powered um, and or thematic. So those are going to be Forbidden Orchard, which we already talked about in this episode. Tendo Ice Bridge, another bad five color fixer from Kamigawa. <laughs> City of Brass, uh, the original five color mana fixer. I think the fact that it comes with this pretty hefty life cost is a feature, not a bug uh, for this format. Uh, and then for newer lands, we're also including Ash Barrens and Fabled Passage. 
Those are both a little bit above the grade for the rest of them, but I think having one of each is not likely to do much harm in the format or enable anything to generate. And that's it. Hopefully you've all committed the mana base to memory. In case you haven't, take a look at the cube on Cube Cobra. By the time this episode's live, you'll be able to see the updates to the mana base there. And uh, let us know your thoughts. If you are a cube uh, mana base pro, uh, we'd love to know what you think we got right and what we th- you think we got wrong or could have done better on. And especially now uh, that we've you know, been through every card in Champions and we've gotten the mana base into that cube on Cube Cobra, feel free to test it out and let us know your thoughts. Yeah, 100%. We we love test drafts. We see them come in now and then. We always look at the decks. It's it's super fun to see people draft. And if you have feedback, yeah, comment on Reddit or shoot us an email, clockspinningpodcast at gmail.com. Absolutely. Well, between Utai Dake, the Hall of the Bandit Lord, and the Bad Boseju, I've given about all of the life I have in my life total for this episode, Connor. Oh. Uh, if you have. He sure has. If you have feedback, thoughts, or memories to share about any of the cards or topics today, um, or about, I would say, any of the Champions of Kamigawa cards we haven't talked about yet, but Connor, there aren't any. That's it. I can't believe it. You can always email us at clockspinningpodcast at gmail.com or just comment on Reddit. Uh, If you like the show and uh, you have another friend who wants to listen to us review um, 288 Champions of Kamigawa cards, um, feel free to share the show with them. And some bonus land. And some bonus land. Uh, It's always nice uh, when new people discover the show. Uh, And you can also follow along as the cube evolves on Cube Cobra. Just check clockspinning.com for links. Coming up next, we've got a few rounds of playtesting we're doing. And so to massage the final numbers for the champion section of the cube. Between now and then, though, because that's going to take a couple of weeks, watch out. We have a special non-Kamigawa-themed episode coming up that we're pretty excited about. It's going to be a lot of fun. It really is. Uh, Spoiler, we may not be talking about the best cards, but we're going to be talking about some interesting cards. Until then, though, I'm Austin. And I'm Connor. Thank you so much for listening. 